How to create a glitch in the matrix. Glitching techniques. To enable us to experience the truly extraordinary, we must learn to puncture these shells of routine or habit. Now, how does one begin to unravel the nature of one's basic habits and routines? Let's start with the sleep cycle. One can dislodge the sleep cycle in time by sleep deprivation, or one can alter the sleep rhythm by alternating more often between states of sleep and wakefulness. The practicalities of doing this aside, it is not that difficult to do with concerted effort. Second, the cycle of ingestion, this may involve anything from food to the air we breathe, to any drugs we may be addicted to. Any ingestion is addictive and habit-forming. Thus, we can say, that the ingestion shell can be further subdivided. Each of these sub-shells corresponds to a rhythm and thus to a pattern of behavior, which conditions the tension under which our bodies function and therefore the expectations we produce. For each sub-shell, we must learn to either abstain or alter the rate or pattern by which we consume or ingest substances. It may be as simple as learning to alter our breathing through breathing exercises, or intermittent fasting to alter our ingestion of food, water, or abstaining from say cigarettes, if we have a cigarette habit. Although some of these habits have obvious techniques for which we can alter the routine, others may require further elaboration, which will be done in later chapters. One of the essential preparatory steps in creating glitches involves the elimination of these patterns. It is not enough to practice the exercises described in this book in the morning, only to eat a habitual lunch in the afternoon. To truly see past the veil, you must abstain from these impulses for a time, or dislodge them in time. The reason for this is that natural impulses like sleeping, eating, urination, defecation, sexual activity, all release tension and create predictable patterns in our behavior. That is why, if you attempt to produce a glitch, you will find that your impulses become more pronounced and difficult to resist. As a preparatory step, it is necessary to abstain from eating to dull the sense of hunger, abstain from sleep, to dislodge the patterns of your life, or abstain from sexual activity, for a brief time, to heighten your body's response to social tension. Some of these practices may obviously reduce tension, but they all contribute to the creation of habits that must be temporarily broken to create glitches. Creating glitches is ultimately about creating patterns and breaking them, which means that the patterns that define us, our impulses, must be ignored or redirected for a time. Altering the manner by which we express meaning has the effect of altering the expectation field we produce and interact with. This may be as simple as using idiosyncratic postures during conversation to negate the expectations of others, or it may be complex as manipulating mirroring techniques within the context of a social dialogue. The goal of glitching is to undermine the rhythm of normal social transmission of bodily tension, to expose the sinews of the interaction and thereby release the unusual beneath it. First, in a social setting, one can incorporate mirroring into posture, facial expression, hand gesture and vocal intonation, when it is inappropriate, or eliminate it when it is appropriate. One can use odd, idiosyncratic postures, expressions, or movements, which would not usually be mirrored, to produce a similar result. One can simply balk at conformity with the common expectations of a place or setting. One can alter the rhythm by which one consumes a beverage, for example, 
or alter one's breathing rhythms. There are manifold ways that one can dislodge the regular occurrence of the unification of the expectation field. The methodology behind doing so is limited only by the imagination of an individual social actor. Obviously, because a social setting has more people, there is a greater likelihood of conflict between two expectation fields. Thus, social settings are the most productive places to experiment with creating a glitch. Below, I have described a few exercises one can use to prepare for such a social setting, keeping in mind that the below are merely examples of the ways that one can dislodge the common expectations that produce uniformity. 1. Breathing exercises. Find a quiet place, preferably a chair that is comfortable, and make sure the room is quiet. Take a deep breath until your lungs are full and then try to breathe in just a little bit more, until you cannot bear to pull in any more air into your lungs. Hold it, for as long as you can, then exhale, until all the air leaves your lungs, push out the last little bit of air as best you can until it becomes difficult and you cannot bear to exhale any more. Hold your lungs empty of air for as long as you can. Then, when it becomes unbearable, breathe in and exhale. Once you have completed the process a few times, the next time you do it, this time, hold the air in your lungs longer than you think you can. This is the tricky part. Your mind will tell you to breathe out, but your mind will also tell you how much longer you think you can hold the air in. You should experience a strange kind of release when you accomplish this feat. The key to this exercise is to hold the air in still longer, just a little bit longer, than you think you can. And then, exhale. And once you have released all the air in your lungs, as much as you can get out, hold it out for longer than you think you can. Your mind will argue with you, tell you that you can't do it, but you can. And then inhale. Rinse repeat for a half hour or so and you've completed the first exercise. 2. Attention exercises. After you've completed the breathing exercises, the next step is to focus and release your attention. You'll find this easier to do after you've completed the breathing exercises. Once you've completed the breathing exercises, stay seated in your comfy chair. Allow yourself to take stock of your attention. You should find now that your attention is more diffuse, that is, your attention should be focused on the background sounds, the ambient noise of the room, the neighborhood, the city, or rural area where you live. You should hear insects, birds, cars, and the general, flowing, back and forth of the area. Try focusing your attention on something, then releasing it back to the background. You should find it easier to do this the longer you have been working on the breathing exercises. 3. People watching exercises. After completing the above exercises, go somewhere where people are, a coffee shop, a restaurant, a bar, and make sure you remove any distractions like your phone from your person beforehand. Listen when you should not be listening, focus on the things people say, that you might not otherwise listen to. Find a table and listen, allow your attention to find the background, then focus on a conversation and listen to it carefully. As you listen try to find the seam of their thoughts, you should feel their words flowing through you, as if their conversations are somehow a reflection of the ambient noise in your mind. As you listen, try to imagine some contradiction inside yourself, it doesn't matter what it is, just allow some contradiction in your internal thoughts to form and think about it exclusively. While you do this, continue to listen to the conversation and listen to how the topics, word choice, 
reflect the internal contradiction in your mind. If you continue to do this, you will find conversations around you begin to reflect your internal stream of consciousness. 4. Social exercises. After you have completed the breathing exercises and attention exercises, arrange a meeting with a friend or friends. Find a table somewhere, a bar, cafe or restaurant, and allow your attention to focus on their body language. Allow the conversation to proceed naturally, but pay attention to when they shift forward in their seats, rest their bodies on tables, pay attention to when they mirror you and when they mirror each other. Now, once you have a grasp on the dance, don't allow yourself to get lost in the conversation, remain mindful of their postures and your own movements. As it gets easier to listen and pay attention, start manipulating your postures to mirror theirs, and then, once complete, once they start reacting to it, break the mirroring pattern. Continue this process for as long as you can, while listening to the ambient conversations in the background. As you get better at this, you should start to find that again, the ambient conversation begins to reflect the ambient noise in your mind. The longer you keep this up, the more closely it should mirror your thoughts. If you succeed in producing a large enough correction event, the ambient conversation should first appear to somehow relate to a contradiction in your mind, then, represent conversation that you could infer refers to you, finally, it should be directly about you or your thoughts or your experiences. 5. Postural exercises. This one is best completed after the attention exercises. Go somewhere where there are people and practice altering your posture to produce changes in other people's behavior. For example, when waiting in a line, stand aggressively, and then passively, try changing the angle of your chin. Practice controlling your eyes, avoiding objects of self-consciousness, then identifying them. As you practice these skills, intentionally using your posture to create shifts in the postures and movements of others, you will find yourself falling prey to postural releases. These are postural shifts which loosen the joints, to produce a release of social tension. The key is to slowly learn to reverse these or prevent them from forming in the first place. The goal is to slowly undermine the natural process of group relaxation. As you do so, listen to the ambient conversation, and like the above you will experience shifts which reflect the contradictions in your mind. I would like to elaborate on an idea introduced in the preceding book in relation to a discordance within the common expectation field. In summary, when mirroring breaks down in a social exchange, there is a corresponding increase in social tension. That increase in social tension is corrected by one of the participants exhibiting postural releases. These are movements of posture or posing which represent the gradual elimination of idiosyncratic, discordant positions, postures and their replacement with a mirrored expression. Mirroring is ultimately about cooperation. Social participants behave in such a fashion so as to produce a lubricated social interaction through mirroring. The movements which correspond to postural releases are movements which we unconsciously act out to release social tension so that mirroring can continue and the exchange continue. Eliminating postural releases increases the group emotional tension which makes a glitch more likely. However, there are other ways to increase this likelihood. One of them is through territoriality with respect to physical space or objects. Ownership of an object is antithetical to the cooperative nature of a mirroring exchange, 
unless there is acquiescence or consent. Postural releases represent the unconscious consent or acquiescence of one of the participants. Now, territoriality with respect to objects and space is ordinarily unconsciously decided. However, just as one can mirror or not mirror, consciously, thereby altering the dialogue, so too can one create physical territoriality with respect to objects or space, thereby increasing the social tension in the group. Using territoriality to artificially create tension can have the impact of making a glitch more probable. For example, let's say two individuals are seated at a table next to each other. They each have a knife and fork. One actor, the glitching actor, takes the nearby knife from beside the other actor's plate during a simple meal. He places the fork in front of him, next to his fork. And then, after producing or observing a response in the other, promptly returns it, while exhibiting postural releases. Such an exchange would create tension artificially, and then release it artificially. Such exchanges are fecund ground for creating glitches. If confronted, the actor who took the knife could simply say it was an accident, no harm done, but in the moment, he may observe something resembling an abnormality. Territoriality is a larger concept as well. For each human being possesses a kind of territoriality of space around their bodies. This space plays a role in their conditioning, rhythms and habits. Stepping into that space casually when it might not contextually make sense, or stepping away from it casually when it might not make sense, has the effect of altering the social dialogue and increasing group emotional tension. Knowing how to manipulate this territorial space is part of creating glitches at opportune times. Now, how do we take the ideas summarized in the preceding chapters and form them into a more cohesive set of directives to create a glitch? Let's start with postural releases. Postural releases are only possible with a loose, vapid attention. They are only possible when one is distracted, because by definition they are unconscious gestures. Since we know that resisting an impulse for a short time enhances our attention and our ability to utilize our bodies for tangential action, we know the first step. Since we also know that the elimination of natural postural releases also increases the likelihood of a glitch, once combined with the first step, it becomes easier to resist these impulses. So we know the second step. Finally, combining the tangential action with territoriality with respect to an object as in the example in chapter 2 would represent the best opportunity to observe a glitch in action. These steps can be used in a consistent way to produce glitches. 1. Find some impulse which recurs frequently. 2. Delay the gratification of the impulse while not letting it become extinct. 3. Maintain a rigid attention and concerted facial expression, posture, not wooden, natural, but yet highly aware. 4. Act tangentially or with artificial territoriality. First, Emotional tension is produced by thought pairings of two kinds, closed to open, and divergent left and right-handed pairings. Closed to open pairings produce emotional tension which is released by the deferent action, postural release. So in an example of the hockey player with the incomplete stride, he will experience an emotional release when he so to speak gives in to the closed thought of the tonic and acts it out. So is the case with all closed to open or deferent pairings postural releases. 
they create emotional tension which is released by reflecting the content of the closed thought. Second, open thought pairings of opposing orientation also create tension as well as being pairing violations. The time it takes for these thought pairings to resolve through the resolving gesture is the correction time. But while these violations exist in a stream of consciousness they maintain a separate kind of emotional tension, a tension that is released when one of the two pairs with a closed thought, because the number one rule of pairing is that open thoughts form pairings with closed thoughts preferentially. The pattern of a resolution is a narrative. That is the common understanding of what a narrative is can be produced by a pairing violation. Third, postural releases are simply those actions which release social or emotional tension. Thus they act as resolving gestures, by eliminating pairing violations. These are actions such as the hockey player's stride adjustment or can also in social settings manifest as postural motions that alleviate self-consciousness. Actions such as touching oneself, looking away, looking down, or away, are all postural releases. When you think about pairing and pairing violations, you must consider it in the context of posture because these actions are like the punctuation which alters the meaning of the internal stream of consciousness. Fourth, as stated in a previous podcast, multiplicity is the perception of multiple versions of another expressing discrete meaning on multiple levels. When one thinks about multiplicity in the context of the above one sees that if postural releases are resisted, the resolving gesture removed, the result will be the extension of the pairing violation into our perception. Thus, once we peel back the layers, it becomes possible to see the expressions of the distinct plates. Fifth, since we know that the resolving gesture eliminates the multiplicity we can see that the plate to which it belongs is the source of the narrative formed by the implicated plate. Methods involving artificially producing and releasing emotional tension, as explained in a previous podcast, as well resisting postural releases, have the effect of creating glitches by eliminating the resolving gestures. This produces longer correction times permitting one to experience longer duration multiplicity events. Method 1. The elevator method. In this method, the goal of the activity is to manipulate facial and emotional gateways by either preventing gateways from forming or creating them at inopportune moments. The ultimate goal of the method is to develop the ability to open and close the facial gateways at will. As explained previously, Manipulating gateways can result in pairing violations occurring and thus glitches as a result. The mechanism for this again is that artificially maintaining a gateway when ordinarily it would be closed due to a dialectical open thought pairing, has the effect of permitting that pairing to continue to subsist while the gateway remains open. It also permits further dialectical pairings to occur until the pairing violation is resolved and the gateway closes. I called it the elevator method because most people in the elevator will avoid eye contact at all costs, and in fact, eye contact with any object which might cause self-consciousness or discomfort to those around them. In this example, we are talking about people who are strangers and have no desire for social contact. Imagine for a moment during the daily social contacts that populate your day, you were to be, in the moment, stuck in an elevator with that person. Now. Imagine developing the skill necessary to maintain this elevator mode while still socializing and doing any of the myriad things that you must do with other people every day. Now, if you can imagine this for a moment, 
that as you master this skill, you find you can now identify the moments when eye contact is least opportune. Try to see if you can maintain elevator mode interspersed with deliberate intentional eye contact. Once you are able to keep elevator mode in constant motion, permitting you to maintain an entire social exchange without for a moment an awkward moment or pause, while the whole time keeping your eyes in motion, or looking at the background, or otherwise occupied, and you have the beginning of the skill necessary to prevent facial gateways from forming. If you succeed in perfecting this method, the first thing you will notice, especially if you produce pairing violations, are a second, third, fourth and fifth level of communication arising from each of the spatial plates. You may then see multiplicity if you combine mirroring and pairing violations. Method 2. A man's reach is further than his grasp. This method relies upon the fact that our body in motion is constantly trailed and preceded by open and closed thoughts which hover around our being continually, projecting our impulses and our goals, into the very future we seek to create. In this method, the exercise is to attempt to conceive of a choice, a location, a place, a destination, take all the steps to go there without any intention of changing direction, and then, at the last minute, change directions, head elsewhere. The goal of this method is to prevent the closing of any pairings through future events. Because thought pairings project intention, they must therefore create linkages between disparate space and time. They must in a way link together two completely separate places and completely separate times, so they are adjacent. In effect, from the perspective of the open or closed thought, it is not time nor space which determines whether two things are proximate, but the thought itself. In this case, if you are successful, as in no thought precedes your choice to change destination, then you might see lights which seem to react to your presence, or you may see people doing things that doesn't make any sense, or saying things that do not make any sense. If you encounter people in your detour they may blurt out absurd things which make no sense in the context. Method 3. Looking backwards. By undermining the natural progression of open thought gateways to closed thought gateways, one exposes the sinews of the link. In practice, what this means, is that the assertive thoughts must be reversed or resisted. Each change in technique, no matter how minute, in any goal-directed event are the result of these closed gateways. So, with a careful attention, these actions can be ironed out, in time, with practice. Now, it may seem counterproductive to undermine the process of improvement, and indeed it is, but in this case, the goal of the action is different than the goal of the activity. By reversing carefully every change in technique, one can eliminate the closed pairings that anchor a person to a particular plate. Imagine that we are now talking about five different versions of a two people playing this game. Each version expresses a different assertive thought. Each assertive thought creates a distinct closed gateway. Each version creates a subtle but noticeable change in the behavior of the less advanced player. In multiplicity, we see that all these subtle changes are expressed, but we do not observe all of them, only the resolving thought, the gesture which resolves the conflict in meaning. Now, if we eliminate the resolving gesture, if we peel back the layers of our identity in its fluid motion, we see the many potentialities. Bottom line. Eliminating the gradual shifts in the way we do everyday things undermines the inertia of others' thoughts, 
unweaving our identity from the commonality which preserves the uniformity of experience. In this episode we'll be discussing a new topic, namely, how to turn any activity into an opportunity to glitch. To do this however you may require a partner. So before you try this out I suggest you look for someone with an open mind, willing to try new things. I'll start this podcast by using an example of an activity which is particularly useful as a basis for attempting to produce a glitch. Namely, dancing with a partner. To begin, this process really only has three steps repeated ad infinitum. Those steps sound deceptively simple, but they are in fact more complex than most would care to admit. They require timing, improvisation and creativity. To start off, Go somewhere open which gives you enough room to move around and dance. Bring something which plays music to make the exercise a bit more fun. Now, bring your partner to your makeshift dance floor. The first step in this process is to face each other just as you would if you were dancing. The second step is for one of you, the leader, to devise a sequence of movements or dance moves on the spot, which are completely spontaneous, but repetitive. Use say five moves in sequence at first if that isn't unduly complex. Now, the leader just creates a pattern using these five moves in sequence before repeating it, again and again. The follower's job is to try to learn the moves from the leader and gradually approach to the best of the follower's ability a mirroring of the pattern. Once the mirroring is established and the follower is doing a good job of it, the leader breaks the pattern while altering his orientation such that it becomes more difficult for the follower to mirror him, but continuing to dance, using different moves or creating a different pattern. This continues until the follower catches on again and replicates the pattern starting the cycle all over again. Now, it is obviously more fun to do this with music. And as the follower and the leader improve the spectacle will indeed be more enjoyable and worthwhile for any spectators. To summarize, 1. Find a partner. 2. Find a place to dance. 3. Decide who will lead and who will follow. 4. Leader creates a pattern. 5. Follower practices pattern until she can mirror. 6. Leader breaks pattern. Leader creates new pattern. Now, that is a simple example of a task which uses the following principles of glitching. 1. Create patterns and break them. 2. Mirror posture and posing and then break the pattern. Now, Other activities likewise provide opportunities to practice glitching techniques. For example, sports such as hockey or basketball. As an example, you could shoot right side while coming from the left three times in a row, then promptly break the pattern on your next opportunity. If you're a musician, you could create a musical pattern, harmony, and promptly break it, repeating the process over and over again. Any activity can ultimately be an opportunity to practice glitching techniques, if you use your imagination. Especially physical activities are activities with a partner. Using the two principles I outlined above, provides ample opportunity to create a glitch in the matrix. In this episode, I will discuss a new concept which I developed in regards to the manner by which one bypasses the entangling deterioration of indirect ground. It was the idea that everything that posits something presupposes its opposite, and in that opposite there is a synthesis, which creates a new something, which presupposes its opposite, and so on and so forth. The secret of this theory was to become a contradiction of two opposing ideas, before the synthesis, 
to hold those two contradictory ideas inside oneself at the same instant, without allowing them to form into a new idea. The idea itself was simple, but the implications were not. It permitted me to experience reality in a kind of space where conscious action is divided into three possibilities. The first and second, the thesis or antithesis, the A or not A. The third, that which sublimated consciousness, the not A, a choice to allow one's consciousness to orchestrate an outcome, by choosing to be changed by it as a passive actor, rather than as an active participant. Imagine the universe is a vast tree of possibilities. Imagine now that most people have two ways that they navigate this tree of possibilities, one by action, the thesis, another by another action, the antithesis. This is the choice. But what if there was a third choice, a third possibility, by not acting, but rather accepting that by acting you are binding your subjectivity to an outcome one way or the other, and the only way to escape the progression of thesis to antithesis is to allow oneself to be changed by the event rather than trying to change it. In this choice, one's consciousness is preserved from the turbulence of reality's unfolding nature. It was a profound idea. The idea that reality would shift, from one set of possibilities to another, based upon the conception that only one thing was different. You. There was of course the limiting factor, which was other people. Our minds are constantly bombarded by ideas and feelings which come from the minds of others. We don't exist in a vacuum. And this means that we may not always be able to restrict the natural progression of the evolution of thoughts and ideas. This theory had a few simple rules. It required not acting on a perception of another. Not replacing a subjective with an objective. But it also required recognition that in regular communication there were manifold ways that others could insert themselves into our thinking. The basics being the tricks of rhetoric. Isolating and restricting the ability of others to insert their ideas into our thought processes became the guiding principle. You must work hard to undermine every effort of persuasion, every fallacy of logic, every logical argument, and in time, I discovered a failing in my theory. The theory itself relied upon freeing oneself from the limits of objectivity through radical subjectivity. But, beneath that, by limiting oneself to the vacuum of one's subjective experience, one finds a paucity of sorts, which cannot be supplemented or replaced. You see, from outside the system, you can see certain patterns unfolding. The first of these patterns is that each and every one of them is directed. Directed by each other. Friendship is more than a relationship. It is a subconscious partnership. Of puppeteer and puppet. Of master and slave. It is also true that amidst any closed system, the expectations of the group are defining. They think they know who you are, and will punish you, if you refuse to validate them. In the silence of a contradiction, one must rely not upon reason, but upon the intuition which flows from a fully active subjectivity, the realization that you know before they do, what it is that they speak. You see, in the contradiction of one that is two, there is freedom of a kind, the freedom to be free of definition, and expectation, for but a moment. This is the idea which leads to a new form of action, defying expectation, recapitulating contradiction, with every waking breath, and in the division, finding the peace which comes only from pure subjectivity. Indeed, to quote my friend in Notes from the Underground, and 1984, 2 plus 2 equals 5. 
In this episode 1 we'll be returning to the topic of continuity, to explain in a new and more meaningful way how it relates to creating a glitch, and more broadly how knowledge of continuity can assist one in structuring one's experience. First of all, I use this word continuity to explain a couple of ideas. Behavior and especially our unconscious behavior is linked irrevocably to the context in which it occurs. Thus, continuity in our behavior is preserved by continuity in the context. But continuity can also be artificially produced or emphasized by replicating habitually the same patterns of behavior in different contexts. Let me explain. Let's say you wanted to structure your experience using an arbitrary sequence of ritualistic behaviors. Let's say you used snapping your fingers three times. Now, every time something good happens that would ordinarily be out of your control, you snap three times, structuring your experience in such a way so as to create continuity between these disparate experiences using an artificial link. Now, let's say you do the same thing for things occurring ordinarily outside your control which you do not like. Let's say, instead of snapping three times with your right hand, you snap with your left once. And thus, you start replicating this pattern each time something happens that you do not like. Now, you have effectively structured your experiences in a divergent fashion. Now, in a previous discussion I mentioned one of the first rules of glitching is creating patterns and breaking them. Thus, just as you would structure your experiences using these little linkages, so too are you creating patterns of continuity and breaking them using these self-same little links. If indeed reality is structured as if it flows from similar to dissimilar, as for example quantum immortality would tell us, then by structuring your experiences in this fashion you are doing two things. 1. You are increasing the likelihood of creating a glitch. 2 you are navigating a reality which is governed by principles such as quantum immortality. Now, to explain, imagine reality is a sequence of probabilities, and each time you create continuity between positive outcomes you are linking them consciously to a linear stream of experience. In effect, these points of ritual narrow experience by recapitulating certain rituals linked to certain outcomes. Now, in a previous podcast I discussed how outs break continuity, or a natural breaks in continuity. I mentioned how during these outs there is a release intention and they permit a non-consensual reality to take the place of what heretofore had been consensual. In effect, these outs represent moments when outlier or idiosyncratic behaviors may intercede. If the goal is to limit the incursion of these behaviors, simply placing the ritualistic behaviors after each out, can create continuity or structure experience to create continuity. In this episode we'll be discussing ways of looking at nature and creativity to produce glitches. Nature is all about patterns. From the movement of the leaves in the fall breeze, to the movement of the stars, to the sounds of water droplets running downstream, to the rush of ants picking and pulling apart some refuse. In fact, it becomes difficult for us to manifest something that is truly random. Even with computers, we find true randomness quite elusive. Patterns are what drive us. Patterns are what lead us. Patterns are what free us. So next time you see that drop of water snaking its way down a window pane. Next time you see that leaf blowing in the wind. Remember, the better you are at creating patterns, in the way you do everyday things. 
the closer you come to seeing reality as it truly is. In a previous episode one talked about using dancing to produce patterns and break them. I started with a group of two. I told you to play a game. In this game, the leader would put together a pattern of five dance moves in sequence, while the follower would mirror those moves. The time it takes for both the leader and follower to mirror each other purposely is the time until the follower becomes the leader and the leader the follower. Now, this time, I'd like you to imagine being surrounded by a dozen people. In this exercise you perform a similar feat, except this time you have to incorporate orientation into it. In other words, since we know that a common orientation in space relative to some object creates a gateway, the goal here is to use orientation and shapes to maximize mirroring at trigger points and then watch that mirroring fade away. The overall pattern of the movements should replicate patterns being created and then broken, over and over again. You can think of it as being performance art. You can think of it being akin to the whirling dervishes of Sufism. Or you can think of it as peeling back the veil of reality, uncovering the hidden truth beneath the gestures of humanity. Now, imagine any creative endeavor with the same principles in mind, create patterns and break them, orientation should reflect certain geometric shapes, use mirroring of patterns and break the pattern and create archetypal forms, turn your creativity into an opportunity to uncover the truth about existence. And I assure you that you won't be disappointed. In this episode, we are going to talk about the importance of our unconscious choices to deference and calibration. To reiterate, emotional calibration is when external choices like style are used to anchor eras in the past. For example, mass media will be used to promote certain consumption choices in the populace, which draws the collective memory of the populace to the last time those choices were common. Deference is a one-directional link between two minds created by body language or verbal direction which enables the holder to influence the unconscious choices of the receiver. Now, both gateways and deference, as unconscious links between two minds, can be utilized for the purpose of emotional calibration. The process of calibration more commonly moves externally, through verbal and social cues. But it doesn't have to. A gateway can cause someone to match their unconscious consumption choices to another. Just as deference can cause someone to match their unconscious consumption choices to another's expectations. From this we can see that our unconscious consumption choices or impulse purchases can be used or worked backwards from to understand, first, how we are being calibrated, and second, how others see us. For example, let's say that you wore your torn jeans today to school. You run into someone you don't know, but who you have an emotional connection to, and it just so happens they are wearing torn jeans. Thus, a spatial intersection is created by a pre-existing gateway. Or perhaps you wear your Nirvana t-shirt to school and run into an old friend. This old friend tells you that the last time you saw each other you were wearing that shirt. Again, this is not a coincidence. As another example, you decide to wear a out-of-fashion tweed jacket, while running into an old friend who observes, I always thought you would look good in tweed. Finally, both can be used for emotional calibration. For example, you wore that tweed jacket today because your mother was reminded of your father on their first date in the 1970s when she saw you step out of the kitchen this morning. Anyway, all of these examples are intended to show that our unconscious choices are almost never coincidental.
there is always a greater significance, a greater importance of them. Now, these ideas also tell us a lot more about continuity and discontinuity. Continuity is the result when we act out our unconscious choices producing and following systemic patterns and currents. Breaking continuity is as simple as shuffling the deck, by allowing ourselves to act out these impulses and then working backwards to the connection, and reversing the choice, breaking continuity. Now, another topic I would like to touch on is how gateways produce nonconsensual realities by causing spatial intersections. When there are enough people in a given area, the likelihood of unwanted intersection increases, there are fewer outs, and people converge without their consent to the exchange. This means that chance meetings create nonconsensual realities, unlike planned convergence. What this essentially means is that you become acquainted with your shadow self through chance meetings, spontaneous actions. Paying close attention to your unconscious choices, searching for commonalities between yourself and others you meet by chance, these are a few of the most important techniques to master glitching. In this episode, we will be further elaborating the web of associations constructed in Season 10, with the primordial unit class of 6. The goal of this episode will be to change the way that we look at reality, to enable us to perceive and shape reality according to this new web of associations. Part and parcel of constructing a web of associations involves the separation and categorization of the product of the senses in terms of the primordial unit class. We have already conceptualized spatiality in terms of three dimensions and temporality in terms of three dimensions, using the shorthand of this podcast in terms of open and closed thoughts. The next step is to conceptualize the senses in these same terms. To start off, there are six recognized senses. Taste, smell, touch, sight, sound, and proprioception. Of these, we can conceptualize three in terms of these already established categories of dimension. These three are taste, color and sound. We'll start with taste. In Indian medicine there are six forms of taste. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, pungent, astringent. From these six, we can assert the shorthand corresponding to the six dimensions of space and time. Thus, sweet becomes a left open to left open, Sour becomes a right open to right open. Salty becomes a left open to right open. Bitter becomes a left open to closed. Pungent a right open to closed. Astringent a closed to closed. Likewise, in regards to color, we can say that the RGB color wheel produces six primary colors, being red, blue, green, cyan, magenta, yellow. These colors we can classify as 1. Red left open to left open 2. Blue, right open to right open 3. Green, left open to right open 4. Cyan, left open to closed 5. Magenta, right open to closed 6. Yellow, closed to closed. Finally, there are six fundamental sounds that when recognized by an infant demonstrate understanding of all aspects of speech. These sounds are 1. R, which becomes left open to left open 2. EE, which becomes right open to right open 3. OO, which becomes left open to right open 4. SHUSH, which becomes left open to closed 5. S, which becomes right open to closed 6. MM, which becomes closed to closed. Our web of associations now has a way of reconceptualizing 1. Sound. 2. Taste. 3. 
Color. 4. Dimensions of spatiality. 5. Dimensions of time. Using these new forms of encoding information in a six-unit primordial class allows us to implicate the number six and what it represents for us each time we use the lens created by these new associations. The end of goal of this process is the construction of a new way of perceiving the world around us, implicating our unique web of associations with each thought and manifestation. For us, the octahedron becomes a sacred object. The number six the fundamental number of reality. When we ritualistically snap our fingers to create continuity, we snap them each three times. When we dance to produce a glitch, we repeat each dance move six times. All of this is merely hypothetical. But the point is to create a web of associations, to use it to understand and categorize our experiences, to bring the uncanny into fruition. There are myriad ways of bringing this web deeper into one's awareness. But this is only the beginning. The rest is up to you. First of all, societal archetypes produce predictable patterns of behavior in people to the extent that there is archetypal fit. That is to say, the system survives by imposing behavior patterns on people according to a set standard. I use the word, impose, because system members and specifically authority figures will punish people who refuse to accept the role assignment. Thus, the system tends to work toward higher archetypal fit from lower, concomitantly with gateway formation. New emotional gateways will tend to accentuate the archetypal fit of a primary archetype. Thus, an emotional gateway will form between two individuals which will lead to a spatial convergence and postural mirroring, translating the archetypal gateway into a spatial one. This will link those two individuals more concretely than purely through an archetype. From the standpoint of glitching, one of the primary methods of increasing the likelihood of observing a glitch involves producing patterns and breaking those patterns. Whether we are talking about spatial patterns or movement patterns or behavior patterns does not matter. In another episode, we discussed creating continuity and breaking continuity. This language refers to actions which follow a pattern, versus those that break a pattern. Continuity can be created by simply following a pattern one observed in the past, in movement, spatially, or behaviorally. Breaking continuity can involve moving differently, in distinct spatial form, or behaviorally. Continuity can be built or broken relative to the past, to another individual, spatially or behaviorally. All of this tells us a few things. First, it tells us that when we have high archetypal fit, when our behaviors are predictable, one must act in such a fashion so as to decrease their predictability. This can be done directly, or it can be done relative to some archetype. One can create an objective, observed, discontinuity from past behavior, or one can act out of character for a particular archetype. The more unpredictable the social behavior that results the more successful it will be at breaking the pattern. The above also tells us that thoughts which follow an archetype, that is, render a person more predictable behaviorally, are open thoughts. That is to say, they are predictable in that they release tension, in that they are highly entangled with the expectations of another person, and represent expectation-matching actions. Thus, we can say, that the more predictable a thought is, contextually, the more likely it is to be an open thought, with pairing resulting. Others will be unconsciously aware of our thoughts which will cause them to react unconsciously. 
All of this will render us even more predictable within the context. In summary, open thoughts render us predictable because they release tension, because they are consonant, which reflects a high archetypal fit but most of all, because they meet others' expectations. Actions which undermine the predictability of our thoughts, reduce the extent to which others will react to them contextually. In other words, suppositional, closed, negating thoughts, are negating because they fail to meet the expectations of others or they undermine them. Sometimes, glitching is about managing others' expectations, as much as it is about micromanaging the minute execution of a goal-directed action. Sometimes the best way to break a pattern is to break an archetype. Sometimes, it is simple as changing what hand you use to open a door. Exegesis is explained in the previous episode is one methodology by which the personal can be removed from the experience, and the abstraction that follows, acts as a filter of experience by narrowing the gateways we maintain. But exegesis is an ex post facto method. It relies upon an after-the-fact elimination of the personal inherent to the experience. There are other methods which can be used to eliminate the personal, destroy the context, so to speak, so as to increase the likelihood of observing a glitch. Suffice it to say, there is nothing more to observing a glitch than seeing something out of time or place. Often the first step in experiencing a glitch involves cutting away the ordinary common sense explanation for what appears to be a trivial event. There are other ways to eliminate the personal, to abstract so to speak, in the moment. These include, 1. Breaking continuity internally and externally with some historical pattern. 2. Loosening one's associations internally. 3. Creating an objective discontinuity in behavior. 4. Acting without objective or rational explanation. Breaking continuity involves recognizing the patterns by which we act, the physical motions, their timing, their spatial dimensions, and overturning them in the moment. It also involves, internally, eliminating patterns in thought processes or gratifications. It may be as simple as using your left hand to shake hands, or giving up your cigarette habit for a determined period, exercising the will to refrain. It may involve postponing that habitual dinner, or reorganizing one's calendar. It might involve altering the timing by which one executes one component of a familiar pattern. Loosening one's associations involves the method of acting against impulses, acting against ordinary associations. For example, instead of having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich one might have peanut butter and honey sandwich. Instead of habitually sitting down for a tea, have a coffee instead. Instead of visiting with you best friend for lunch, seek out that acquaintance with whom you have little in common. Visit that art gallery which you have no interest in. Take that route to work which you avoid out of negative associations. There are myriad ways to loosen one's associations. Creating an objective discontinuity involves adopting lifestyle choices which are antithetical to your values and telegraphing them to those around you through social cues. Acting without objective involves ritualistic and empty actions that undermine the normal timing of and patterns of behavior. All these associations, and patterns, are part of a web of associations constructed out of how you navigate the world, how you describe yourself, and how you describe others. They all assist in the assignation of meaning by context.
Eliminating context is as much about navigating the internal as it is about redesigning the external. Both go hand in hand to produce new patterns which might reveal some deeper truths. Finally, esoteric objects as described in the complete series possess the quality of being pillars in the webs of association constructed around us by our actions and internal narratives. It is through these objects that we manifest, project and assign meaning to our experiences. In fact, the esoteric gate of the room, as a common strata, a common substrate, provides a context for experience. Just as a knife creates discontinuity, displaces the meaning which we understand and punctures the ordinary emulsion of context. Exegesis plays a preferential role in developing a web of associations, because it draws out the personal and reorients meaning. But no amount of exegesis can alter the importance of the pen or the incisiveness of the sword. As explained in the last podcast, control over one's personal autonomy through the mechanism of consent to an exchange, determines the nature of the reality in which the participant inhabits. If the power of consent, manifesting in personal autonomy, is divided by gender identity or some other distinguishing characteristic such as class, this determines the nature of the reality which that participant inhabits. For example, if the feminine possesses the power of bodily integrity through consent, through the mechanism of precedent or legislation, enforced by the state through its monopoly on force, then they possess the ability to impose a consensual reality as an overlay upon the experiences of others. Practically what this means is that the reality inhabited by an empowered participant, determined by their sole or preferential authority to consent to an exchange, allows them to permit convergence only when it fits the consensual reality they inhabit, meaning it must be consistent with the identity held voluntarily by the so empowered. To explain it another way, imagine that two individuals are talking. Now, person A, who is empowered by consent, experiences a conversation and sequence of events we will call one. Person B, experiences a sequence of events we will call two. Now, the outcome of these two exchanges will fit sequence two for both participants only to the extent that it is consistent with sequence one. Any multiplicity or divergence will resolve to the benefit of person A, according to sequence 1. So, as an example, let's say that person B recalls a jovial conversation of approximately 5 minutes in duration. Person A recalls a 2-minute conversation, followed by a pause, during which time she went for a cigarette and joked with another co-worker for 15 minutes, before returning, and concluding a 3-minute conversation. Now, of course for these two narratives to coexist there must be folds in time, and lost time, for one of the participants, which follows part and parcel from our discussions about the nature of time, in earlier podcasts. Thus, the power to consent, is the power to shape the common experience, the intersubjectivity which results from contradictory subjectivities. As explained in an earlier podcast, we exist in proximity to others, not in truly the same reality. For person B, reality is non-consensual or imposed upon him, the result of his shadow parts. For person A, the power to consent feeds an inward-looking reality, which fulfills the consciously held identity of the actor. She who controls consent determines the consensual reality. She shapes what we see, determines the points of intersection, 
Realities are determined as between pairings. Two distinct realities can exist side by side, one consensual and one non-consensual. As discussed in previous episodes, the creation of archetypes and narrative promotes the assumption of these narratives and archetypes by system members. That is to say, nature abhors a vacuum. Thus, the creativity necessary to manufacture narrative and archetypal forms promotes their assumption by group members. Since it follows that narrative has the power to recapitulate itself in the substrate of our experience, it also follows that narrative can be artificially used, consciously used, to change the outcome of what would typically be understood to be events heavily afflicted by chance. In other words, one important technique in manifesting a particular event or occurrence involves the production of narrative further to that desire or impulse. How does this work practically? Imagine that you're on a sporting team and you're about a day away from the championship game. Now, what if, as part of the preparation for that game, you were to write a personal, autobiographical story, featuring yourself as a main character? Now imagine that in this story you carefully craft a narrative which ends in your team's victory. I call this practice, life writing. It involves the intentional visualization of an outcome which would seem to normally be outside our direct control for the purposes of manifesting it as an outcome. But life writing doesn't begin and end with writing. Any medium can be used to produce such a work. If you are a painter, then paint. A photographer, take pictures that tell a story of victory. Now, even more effective, you could write a script which describes your victory. In advance of the game, you could take on roles and act it out. Now, let's say you wanted to ensure better cooperation between teammates in advance of the game. How would you go about doing that? Typically, team building activities would be used, but instead what I am suggesting is that you ask your teammates what their favorite interests are, movies, books, etc., and once you have discovered this, place an anchor for these things somewhere in your room or home, in the background. This would have the effect of deepening the gateways that link the team together improving cooperation. Another technique to improve gateways would be to synchronize your consumption patterns, meal patterns. Eat the same meals or eat at the same times of day. Listen to the same music. Wear the same color of tie. There are myriad ways to unify your minds in advance of the game, which detract in only minor ways from your autonomy. Imagine that you are simply looking for that special someone in your life. Life writing, the same technique can be used. Write a story which creates an archetype and fill it with all the qualities that you desire in a mate. Then write a story of your first date. The great thing about these techniques is that you don't have to be a great writer. You simply have to go through the process of visualization and creation. You don't even need a reader of the story. You can delete it the moment it is complete but the more you share it with the more effective will be the manifestation. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it please like, comment, and subscribe.